the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning to you. It's Tuesday. We move into uh, the second day of a new week on the Dave Ellswick Show today. Elizabeth Sotolaro, who is on the phone with me right now, will join me during the first hour and again in our last hour at 6 o'clock tonight. At uh, 7 o'clock, the Bible guys will be here, and I've already talked to them, and they'll be calling in, and we'll be uh, doing our thing. I'm, I'm at home still. I'm going to be here for a while yet. It's going to be at least another two weeks before they take off my cast. And uh, hopefully by then I, uh, they'll take the stitches out from my surgery. It'll be healed. And they'll let me start getting, on, uh, getting back into a normal uh, way of life. Uh, a, little, a little bit of house cleaning uh, at the beginning of the show today. Next month, just so you'll know, I am going on vacation. I'm going to be gone from uh, September 11th, and I'll be back on the air on September 21st. Uh, I'm heading down to Florida and uh, having some time there. Uh, If you say, oh, good, I can go and uh, steal all the memorabilia from Ellswick's house while he's gone, I wouldn't suggest that because there will be somebody here waiting for you and they are proficient in firearms. Just wanted to let you know. But, uh, yeah, that, that's what's, what uh, the next few weeks looks like. I'll be on the air from my house, and hopefully by the time I get all done uh, in the middle of September with vacation, I'll be ready to come back into the studio, and uh, hopefully the Internet will be repaired by then, and we can get things back on to uh, – uh, Facebook Live. We're not doing Facebook Live. If you're, uh, you know, you're listening to the show right now, you usually watch it. You enjoy watching it. Uh, no Facebook Live. Uh, we got we got hacked. We're pretty sure from a, a, a some kind of left-leaning organization because, as I like to always point out, uh, Salem Communications, the people I work for, are the most conservative group in radio and so when you turn into our station uh, you're going to hear conservative views you're going to hear me first in the morning then we have uh, a, a show that's going to talk to you how about the, how to make money out of the money that you're trying to save then rush then you're going to have Hannity then you're going to have Sekolo then you're going to have me again then you're going to have uh, a lot of other people uh, Sebastian Gorka Larry Elder and others uh, that talk to you all 100% uh, percent bona fide 
conservatives. We don't play at it. We are it. Uh, so if you want to hear conservative talk and conservative opinion, uh, this is the place you must be because you'll not get it at the other ones. Uh, uh, they, they play games at it. Yeah, Elizabeth. And it's getting, it's getting harder and harder to find. It's getting harder and harder to find. So this is where you want to be. Get your conservative on every morning at 6 a.m. Yeah, we tried to do that. So let's get our conservative on a little bit. Because I sat down and I read the articles, of, you know, uh, John Kasich, former uh, congressman and, and governor uh, from Ohio, spoke last night at the, uh, the Democratic Convention. And uh, let me just quote him here. He was criticizing Trump and he said, uh, Kasich argued that, quote, many of us have been deeply concerned about the current path we've been following for the past four years. It's a path that's led to division, dysfunction, irresponsibility, and growing vitriol between our citizens. Continuing to follow that path will have a terrible consequence for America's soul because while being taken down the wrong road by a president who has pitted one against the other, he emphasized that, quote, I'm a lifelong Republican, but that attachment holds second place to my responsibility to my country. That's why I've chosen to appear at this convention. He noted that, quote, in normal times, something like this would probably never happen. Be, but these are not normal times. I'm proud of my Republican heritage. It's the party of Lincoln who reflected its founding principles of unity and a higher purpose. But what I have witnessed these past four years belies those principles. Okay, let me deal with that first. There, you know, I think Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents. Uh, you who have listened to me for years know that I believe Washington was the greatest president this country has ever had. Uh, none other uh, than uh, President Washington. After that, I'd have to come up into the 21st century and tell you that I believe that Ronald Reagan was next greatest president here in uh, our, our, these United States. Now, every other president in between those times had, had areas that they were good in. Teddy Roosevelt was good. Uh, FDR had things. He held the nation together during World War II, but he ran an economy into the ground. I can go on and on about all those men. I just think the two men that I stated uh, stayed true to the core principles throughout the time uh, that they were presidents of these United States. And I do believe that we needed Trump during this time of these United States as well. Uh, but speaking of Lincoln, and to cast Lincoln as nothing more than the great unifier is a lie. That is a lie. I, I was, Russ came over uh, and visited with me. You know Russ. Russ is my former producer. He still works for Salem. He still works for us there at the, at the studios, but he's the operations manager now, so you don't hear him on the air with me at times like you did before. 
and we were sitting and talking, and he was explaining that he went to Springfield, Illinois, and visited the Lincoln Museum there. Now, I've been there several times. I love that museum because it shows Lincoln for what he was, a a divisive president in our country. Now, if you're from the north, you think that he was, you know, better than canned beer because he did he did everything necessary to hold the, the the union together. If you're from the south, you think he's the spawn of Satan. I'm just telling you, for most people, he's the spawn of Satan down here. You bring up Lincoln around uh, the south, and they don't have a lot of great things to say about him. Here's what I'll say. He was the president for his time. He did what needed to be done to save the Union. But to say that he wasn't, uh, uh, you know, didn't cause any division is a lie. 600 and nearly 620,000 Americans died during the time that Lincoln was president. Now, that doesn't say that he was the the great unifier uh, that everybody wants to say that he was. Sure, he, you know, he kept the union together. But 620,000 people were asked to lay their lives down on whichever side of the argument that they fell on. Those were Americans fighting Americans. And you might think we're divisive right now. But uh, you can't count uh, 35,000 dead like they did on the fields of Shiloh uh, during this time. It's not that way here in our country. There's a lot of vitriol. There's a lot of, I will admit, probably hatred amongst the two sides. But I will also tell you that, uh, you know, it's not as bad as it was in the time of Lincoln. Do you, do you agree with me on that, uh, Elizabeth? I'm not a, a fan of history. I don't know my history as well as I should, but I totally, totally agree with what you're saying. It's, again, when when the Democrats and faux Democrats like Kasich look at our history, they have this really unique ability to cut out all the facts that don't fit their narrative and look at things only from one point of view. Sure, Lincoln was a uniter in some ways, but I understand that even after the war, the South was not not real happy. They they stayed in, but they weren't real happy. Well, so, you know, Lincoln. You know, I, a lot of people don't realize Lincoln was assassinated, I believe, two weeks after the Civil War ended. Yes. Okay, yes. and then Johnson yes. became president, and Johnson was a god awful president. I mean, he was terrible. Absolutely terrible, and it was only until Ulysses S. Grant was elected president that uh, the South started to get a fair shake again as an equal member of the Union. Because while Johnson was in, the carpetbaggers and everything else that went on uh, is just a disgusting part of American history. Now, that's something that you'll find about uh, people like me. I can talk about American history. I'll tell you the good, the bad, the ugly. All right, because it's all there right in front of you. But I do believe the good, the bad, and the ugly all was leading us to that great statement that's made in the Declaration of Independence as we move towards a greater union, a more perfect perfect union. union. 
a All more right. perfect union. That's what it. we aspire to. That's yeah. what we are aspiring to. The Democrats have this uh, opinion <laughs> that we're supposed to be perfect, and it's their job to point out every area that we're not perfect and hammer it into the ground. I really don't see where that really helps us become a more perfect union. No, it, uh, it does not, and sh- they're faking it. That's the bad thing. I, That's I'm, the worst part of it. Yes. I made I made I made the statement to you before we came on that the Democrats will say uh, we're we're great Americans and they'll they'll flourish all the icons of Americana around them. And you were talking to me about them uh, today before we went on the air about you know showing the the barns out in the countryside with the American flag. Well, you're making on me them. throw up in my mouth. And, last you know, night's all, last night's opening. Yeah. You know they they <laughs> go out and they and they take hostage those images uh, for their uh, convention, but then they don't say anything bad and in fact back people like Black Lives Matter who are attacking the very things those images stand for and are, you know, destroying our police forces in other cities and would destroy every police force across America if they had enough followers to do it. I'm just telling you, that's what it would. The Democrats just use people. That's what they use. They use people. They have for years. They still do, and they continue to do. They used the American voters last night. We need to talk about the convention. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to do the that. Opening. We're going to we're going to do that. In fact, when we come back, let's sit and talk about it because I I talked a little bit about it just by you know Kasich is standing up there speaking at the Democratic convention, and and that's not something uh, new. Let me let me do do some history. No, we knew he you. was going to be on. Yeah, well, let me roll some history for you, all right? Let's go on the Republican side, okay? Uh, Lieberman spoke to the Republican convention uh, a, a few years back uh, for, for uh, McCain, if you remember that. He, Correct. Uh, he talked to him. Do you remember uh, the hawk from Georgia, the senator from Georgia that spoke for uh, George W. Bush? Uh, I'm trying to think if his name just eludes my mind all of a sudden. He was a great senator from the state of uh, of uh, uh, Georgia. And uh, that was during the time that during the uh, uh, candidacy of, uh, of uh, Clinton, they were destroying the military. And, and uh, he stood up and, and spoke against it. Uh, but he gave. But look, let, let me ask you this question: Do you remember anything out of those speeches at all? Uh, well, I, Elizabeth, I was just going to comment. I don't know that. I don't know how influential someone from the other party is speaking to the base of the opposite party. Well, and um, they're not. And again, they're not influential. What they're there for is to try to go out and get the independence. They're not influential with that. Uh, well, as if the independents were, were watching or even considering what was going on, polls are showing that the independents are quickly turning off of this uh, new wave of violence and, and intimidation that the Democrats are pushing on us. Um, it, they're not happy about it. But no, right. we don't need to hear from the opposite party when we're having a party convention. All right. 
Well, let's talk about what's going on to DNC in Milwaukee. Uh, of course, that's the land of Laverne and Shirley, and uh, of course, uh, the motorcycles, you know, Harley Davidson, uh, and the Brewers, as much as I hate to say it, and, you know, Schlitz beer. <laughs> just, just a few things that I remember about Milwaukee. Let's take a break. We got more. Elizabeth is with me. She'll be with me the first hour. And again, in the last hour, the Bible guys are coming up at seven. If you still have questions for the Bible guys, send them right now to Heidi, H-E-I-D-I. You're going to email them to Heidi, H-E-I-D-I at Salem L-R. A break and more on the Dave Ellswick Show. 25 minutes after 6, Elizabeth, you've been looking uh, across all the different links to different stories. What seems to be the the media's feel? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume that CNN and CBS and ABC and all the rest of them are being, uh, you know, we love uh, we love the uh, the DNC and what they're doing at the convention. Although I have to say from some things that I've kind of picked up in between the sentences as you've talked to me, uh, a lot of people are not finding this uh, virtual convention entertaining uh, in any way, shape, or form. And a lot of people like uh, um, middle-of-the-road folks, the folks that are out there say they don't know who yet they're going to vote for, which is still beyond my my greatest imaginings, but uh, I, I don't think it's hard to decide who to vote for in this election. But uh, anyway, uh, just, you know, bring up to us what's the overriding theme that you're seeing out in the media? I don't think the left liked it much more than we did. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't think so. They made they made a lot of fun of the uh, beginnings and the openings. Um <laughs> They compared it to the PBS telethon. Okay, long and boring, YouTube ad. Right. It was uh, pretty interesting. It well, says from, the DNC feels the DNC so far feels like one long ad on YouTube, the kind you'd usually skip. Another person said the cheesy videos that used to be space fillers at the convention have become the convention. Uh, this is a lot of stuff on Twitter. It's pretty funny. Um, someone, oh, S.E. Cup. Now, she's a pretty well-known uh, commentator. Yeah. This feels more like a sad telethon than a rousing call to arms. Not much energy. Yeah. PBS telethon vibes are so strong, the DNC will throw in a free tote if you call in a pledge in the next there five minutes. That's, <laughs> a, that, that's what I had heard. It was like you were waiting to find out what you got if you voted Democrat. And, uh, and, and you know, it, it's sad because what you and, and this is exactly I'm going to take you back eight, almost 12 years ago. Uh, when was it 12 years ago or eight years ago when Obama was running for a second term? I think it was eight years ago. And Mitt Romney was our going to be our nominee. And when you watched the convention, it wasn't about what the Republicans were going to do. It was about how much we hated Obama. 
you know, that's that's what it was all about. It was all about that negative narrative poised, of course, in a positive way. But it was all against Obama, just like, uh, you know, I guess you could go back another eight, 12 years and say the same thing about when we ran against Clinton. Uh, The key for everybody to understand is you don't win elections by just beating up on the other guy. You win elections by setting up what you're going to do if you are elected. That's they're not doing that. And I'm going to be interested if any of that shows up uh, during this four days, because if it doesn't, the Democrats are already dead in the water. They're not going to get much of a bump out of this at all. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the president is going to take over come next week. And he's got tons of stuff to talk about that he has done that has helped this nation. And I know I love listening to the, the Democrats say how bad the economy wa- is. It's bad because of COVID-19, and it's bad because you fought against fixing <laughs> The economy. All right. We'll come back. We'll talk more about it. We've got to take a break. Elizabeth, news is next, and that's happening right now here on 101.1 FM. All right. Back with you, Dave Ellswick Show, 25 minutes to 7, 30 minutes away from the uh, being joined by the Bible guys. They're coming up at about five minutes uh, after 7. Got plenty of questions for them. If you have a question, we're taking them by email. Send it to Heidi, H-E-I-D-I, at SalemLR.com. I'll repeat that one more time for you. Heidi, H-E-I-D-I, at SalemLR.com. I got to tell you, Heidi, every time I say your name, what flashes in my brain is the the Heidi Bowl uh, from many, many years ago. Uh, it was a football game. Are you aware of this? I have never heard of the Heidi Bowl. That's oh, interesting. Yeah. Never heard of that. No. Yeah, it was we Monday Night Football was, I think it was Monday. It may have been Sunday. I tell you, but it may have been Sunday. And uh, there was a, a football game between the Oakland Raiders and, if I'm not mistaken, the New York Jets. And uh, I believe Oakland was behind. Now, I'm I'm a little bit uh, uh, thin on this. But NBC, who was carrying the game, uh, or CBS, decided they had a special that they had made that they wanted to show, and it was Heidi. Huh. Uh, You're you're familiar with the story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I have heard of the Heidi Bowl. Yeah. Okay. So they they broke away from the football game. And they went to Heidi. And everyone and, got so mad, didn't they? Well, they got mad because <laughs> the team that was trailing, I think at the time by like 21 points, scored 28 points and won wow. the game. Wow. And they And everybody see missed it. it. That's exactly. Oh yeah. Can you, can you imagine? That is glorious. That is, yeah. that is awful and tragic, but oh my gosh. That's and great. So I just, I'm just saying every time I say Heidi, I think of that. Yeah. Yeah. It just flashes in my mind for a moment. But anyway, and just let you know, people who are my age, the same thing happens. And I don't know whether they're blessing you or cursing you. Oh, what? They're probably, they're probably doing one or, or the probably other. Probably both. 
in some right. form or fashion. Well, just to make you feel better, I'm about the same age, and I think of a very nice children's book that I had when I was a child. There and a very nice go. character called Heidi. There you go. The little girl who was in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, that, and that's, that's right. What, and let me just tell you. American sports fans did not want to see that. Nope. On TV <laughs> when there was a football game on. Oh man! I, I'll never forget my father. My, I never saw my father get so mad that he was just spitting and sputtering. But but he was spitting and sputtering that night, just stomping around the house. And you know he was so mad at at that that nothing that anybody else said about anything else could get him off of it. Uh, he would just he just Goodness. went on and just continued to go off on it. And that's kind of what's going to happen with this DNC. Uh, they're wanting you to forget all the stuff that they've done over the last four years to bring this president down. When you think about all the things this president has done, think about how much more he could have gotten done if the Democrats wanted to truly be as unified with America as they're trying to portray now in their convention. Just think about that for a few moments. There's no play, There's no telling where we would have been uh, in the economy because they fought us on the economy as well. Well, and they criticize the Republicans for, quote, always looking in the past and not looking forward. I mean, that's all they've done here is try to use all this imagery, or at least the first part of it. I only watched the first few minutes. I couldn't take much more of it. But they used all this imagery. They overplayed their hand. They always do. It's always about what it looks like. Lots of talk. This is someone uh, online. Lots of talk about empathy, unity, decency. Very little about jobs, health care, or economic inequality. They're the talking final two with weeks. the left. They're talking yes, about yes. the left. The left yes, goes by feelings. They go by feelings and not by facts. That's what the left does. We talk and about that all the look time. Like. Not That's what right. they are, but what they look like. And this is the other thing. This is another Democrat. He says, imagine having all the awesome creative talent of Hollywood and the entertainment industry right at your fingertips. And this is the convention you produce. I have to totally agree. It was a pathetic uh, throwback to, I mean, even the production value of the videos that they started off with were not up to what we see these days. They were not innovative. They were very boring. Full of full of Americana, full of, you know, young people of various colors and singing America and flag waving and barn pictures with flags and, you know, what pastures. You're telling, and, no, wait a second. What, you, what you're painting for me is a, uh, a late 60s, early 70s Coca-Cola commercial with everybody you. gathered on a hill oh, and singing, we want to. That's be, exactly you know. it, Dave. That's exactly it. I had, That's exactly the analogy. That's precisely what it, what it reminded me of. <laughs> it's and the of real thing. And, of course, the idea thing. that they're all doing recorded stuff. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, every, yeah it's all virtual. Everything that's going It's all virtual. virtual. And uh, we only do that because we can't do it in, you know, real time, real places right now, just so everybody understands where that's at. We've got about four minutes left in this segment. So what would, what grade would you give the DNC for their first night uh, from what you're hearing on uh, mm-hmm. the Internet? 
What's what's the chamber saying out there? It sounds like to me they're giving them a, a C minus. I, I was just going to say C minus, maybe a D plus, and that's because you got to give them some kind of credit for giving it a shot. <laughs> yeah. But the not only, I mean, the left. It's interesting. You're seeing the left do a lot of criticism, but they're also sort of cringing and and weakly very weakly trying to, you know, push it out as being a great thing. But they're really, it's kind of like the damning with faint praise kind of thing. They're just not getting there. They really can't rally behind. Like you say, they tried to unify themselves in the first few minutes of this convention. And frankly, I don't think it worked. I think it did just the opposite. Mm, Good, good. Okay, so I I wanted to make everybody for sure know that – I'm trying to. I've been trying to put the sen- get the senator uh, from Georgia, who spoke at the <laughs> Republican. It was Zell Miller. You remember Zell Miller? Oh yeah, I know that name. I couldn't yeah. think of who it was. Demo- Democratic Senator Zell Miller. Uh, One of the first times that happened. Yeah. Yes, and uh, he spoke uh, in front of the uh, uh, the convention. Uh, and shot some folks. Yeah, yeah, I think I think for George, uh, the senior, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, in the, that his uh, last run against uh, Dukakis. So I think that's when he did uh, his dead. All right, so uh, we will come back here in just a few moments and uh, talk further. It's time for us to get a break in. Here on the Dave Ellswick Show. If you're wondering what I'm, you know, at times it may seem like I'm being a little absent-minded this morning. It's because <laughs> it's because so oh. many things are down because of the hack that happened with Salem. That I'm uh, I'm I'm watching Heidi on text. I'm watching Elizabeth on text. I uh, I get a an an email th- comes through my emails ever so often. So I'm kind of looking at that right now. Plus, I'm keeping my eye open on all the other links from the different stories uh, that I had from last night. It's pretty disconcerting at times. Here's the key. DNC didn't bring themselves together last night. The DNC had, I think, negligible, if any effect whatsoever, on uh, the middle of the peop- uh, of America that's still trying to make up their mind how how they're going to vote. I'll tell you what, whoever controls that, uh, the Democrats control that, they make it a very, very tight race come November. They don't control that, and uh, the uh, Republican Republicans, it will be a juggernaut come in November. They will roll uh, over uh, the Democrats. So we got a lot still to talk about here. On the Dave Ellswick Show, Elizabeth is with me. So, Laurel, she takes care of all my social media. So when you're watching my Facebook page and you see all the stories that she's she's posting, she's getting a lot of those from me, but she has an open hand to post stories that she knows that maybe I haven't seen and that need to get up on the, the site for you to see. So stay with us. We've got more going your way here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Bible Guys coming up at six minutes after seven here at 101.1 FM, the uh, the answer. Okay, back with you. Elizabeth is here with me. Elizabeth, uh, the Blaze uh, did a really good story yesterday about uh, 
this, uh, uh, you know, what's the, best, what's the way we've been putting it, this do-nothing <laughs> hamburger uh, that uh, Pelosi and Schumer and some of the other Democrats are starting to say that Trump is destroying the uh, – uh, the USPS. I mean, look, the USPS. He's taking is, over the post office so he can steal the election. The USPS has been destroying themselves <laughs> for the last decade or more. They re- <laughs> they had refused during that whole time of coming to grips with new technologies. Completely, completely. Hey, let me let me say this to the UPS. You want to know where some of your letters went? Can you say email? Thank you. Can you say they text? They lost 5 billion pieces of first-class mail in 2017. Okay, and they lost Way it back. to technology. That's what technology. they did. Technology. That's right. Okay, but so. But they also took over a lot of shipping, okay? So they've got yeah. different things going on. They've lost their business model, but that's a different issue. Okay, so let's talk about what was said on uh, on the blaze about this. Well, they actually are talking, and it was President Obama, former President Obama, who last week picked up on this fever dream that the Democrats are having about the post office. And he, of course, said that Trump is purposely attempting to sabotage the post office to alter the results of the election. Well, let's see. Where would they get that idea from? Uh, We've seen it's unique to modern political history, a president who is explicit in trying to discourage people from voting said uh, David Plouffe, who was a former campaign advisor for Obama. Sure. We've never seen a president say, I'm going to try to actively kneecap the Postal Service. It's sort of unheard from. They've been doing a good job of that themselves. They're the only people I knew (laughs) that I know that that self-amputates without uh, any kind of anesthesia. And they scream during the whole process. I mean, that's what they've been doing over the last uh, decade. But before we go any further, hey, uh, we, we got our, our man on. Willie's joined us. Willie, what did you have for us? Well, Dave, my artificial hips and your foot. Yeah, no kidding, brother. <laughs> Listen, Dave, I don't want to vote for Biden, but I heard from somebody, Rush or somebody, that if Trump gets reelected, he's going to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. Oh, man, yeah. I, am so, I am so tired of hearing about this. Well, I'm going to talk tomorrow uh, directly uh, to uh, uh, Congressman Hill about this uh, this just vacuumous argument. I mean, Joyce Elliott is making She's running against, of course, Elliott about how uh, Hill wants to get, get rid of uh, of uh, Social Security and stuff and Medicare saying, hey, they're going to they want to take that money. They want to give us at seven and a half percent. They're not going to hit us with uh, as far as a tax on our income and use that money to give to us. And, of course, that's what is going to finance uh, Social Security and Medicare. And so that money won't be there. Problem is, sorry, you all, it's right there in the bill. It says that those two particular uh, uh, you know, products of the U.S. government, and that's what they are. They're products of the U.S. government, are not going to be touched. They're going to be continued to be funded. So I, they're, they're just, they're just lying scaring now. people. They're, they're lying. Just scaring people. This they're has lying. to do with the payroll tax cut that Trump is asking for. Yeah, seven and, and they're complaining that the money would be, you know, oh, my God, if you if you give people a little bit more money in their paycheck for the rest of the year to help them out, that that will completely take out 
the Social Security and Medicare programs. It's ridiculous. It, it, it makes no sense. Yeah, let me you're ask right. You. It says right in the bill it yeah. will not be touched. Yeah, let me, let me ask you there real quickly, Willie, and I know you know this already, but uh, because they sent us all a, a personal check, of $1,200 a few months ago because uh, that was unfunded Monday money. Uh, does that mean that the senators and congressmen didn't get paid? Of course didn't get not. paid? Yeah, they got paid, right? Did didn't they take they money away yeah. from the senators and the representatives? Because that money, money is already, that money's already <laughs> been allocated, all right? And it, it, it's just such a stupid, stupid thing. You just got to scare people. Please sit and think about it for a moment, if you would. Uh, all the rest of the government didn't come to a screeching halt because they were using, they they were, you know, paying people because they sent us all that money. Yeah, they, they it didn't happen. All right, does that does that carry through what you wanted to talk about there, Willie? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pelosi wants three trillion. All Schumer and Pelosi want to do is spend, spend, spend. That's, That's all right. a Democrat ever wants to do. Sadly to say, sadly to say, there's a there's a there's a segment of the the Republican Party that wants to do the exact thing. Hey Willie, thanks for calling in. I hope your hips are better. Let's hope that my uh, my foot gets better. All right. We'll get your foot healed. Well, I'm working it. I'm working it. I'm getting my eight hours of sleep at night. I'm eating more protein, and uh, I, I I'm not I'm not watching DNC. I'm not either, Dave. Because if, if I watch the Democratic National Convention, I'll just get upset, and that'll slow the healing process down. And I don't I watch a minute of it. Yeah, I don't blame you. Have a good one, Willie. We'll talk to you later. Uh, Willie down in the Benton area. Appreciate him calling in. He's been a faithful listener for years. Here a long the, time. The a Dave long Elfrey time. Show. And, and, you know, he, you know he, he just go ahead. He reminds me of something again. I've been reading all these responses to last night's DNC convention, and this is from a Democrat who says, you know, I just as soon, I think I'm going to have to just lay down and scream for the next eight hours. Really? <laughs> it's just, you know, they're crazy, these people. They're just well, crazy. Well, what they're trying to do is is uh, is crazy because they're they're trying to say we're we're going to be unified when we walk out. Let me show, let me tell you how unified they're going to be when this is all said. Last night, while the convention was going on, uh, Biden evidently made a statement uh, yesterday that some some police people are good people, and the left went. Oh my gosh. Bonkers. I mean, they went crazy. I'm looking for the story right now. I sent it last night uh, to Elizabeth, so I'm trying to pick it up right now. Hold on. I got. It's not like we haven't been texting today. Uh, got a ton of text right here. Okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting to it. Okay, that's where's last night. Here it is. Just, here it is. I got it. This is from the Western Journal. And uh, former Vice President Joe Biden became the target of leftist ire on social media after saying during the 2020 Democratic National Convention that, quote, most cops are good. 
Check that. that. That's four words, okay? Four words. Most <laughs> cops are good. Biden that made doesn't the fit remarks. the narrative. <laughs> he he made, a, made the remark during a panel discussion on police reform. Quote, most cops are good, but the fact is the bad ones have to be identified and prosecuted and out, period. The Democratic president nominee said Monday during the first night of the convention. But on Twitter, all right, on Twitter, Leftists took issues with that. Hannah Perry said, most cops are good. Gwen, how are you doing, says Joe Biden to the mother of Eric Garner. Are you for real? Uh, This, and how dare they lead into Eric Garner's mother with, most cops are good. Protesters haven't been in the streets all summer because most cops are good. LOL, did Biden actually say most cops are good? Man, good thing I'm not watching this, I would just be so mad, I bet, uh, as far that, as that. And, and it went on and on and on. I mean, they savaged them on social media last night, savaged them so much. So, hey, so much for, uh, you know, the left out there joining up with uh, the middle and uh, the right wing of the Democratic Party. What little <laughs> right wing they got, they ain't going to do it. It's just not going to happen. This, this is the tweet that I saw. This person says, I was trying to watch the DNC, but the minute Joe Biden said most cops are good cops, I decided that laying down and screaming for eight hours would be a better use of my time. <laughs> There's so yeah. many things wrong with that tweet. <laughs> oh, gosh. Bye. Here's the Started Bi- hooting at the TV, you yeah, know. Biden. Biden is, is tone deaf. Quote, he says, most cops are good. And then he immediately asks Eric Garner's mother how she's doing. And he refers oh, and to how his, dare he say that Eric died rather than the police killed him. How that, dare he? That's right. Absolutely. I'm just saying that's what's going on. You got you got to kind of keep your eye on the Twitter feed and all of that. We're out of time, Elizabeth, for the first hour. We got more of this to talk about when we come back that people will hear here on uh, 101.1 FM. Uh, the answer at 6 p.m. Stay tuned, though. The Bible guys are coming up. The news is going to be they're going to be here. Elizabeth, I'll talk to you again uh, in a few hours. Stay, stay tuned. All right. I'll talk to the rest of you as well when we come back from the news with the Bible guys here on the Dave Ellsworth Show. talks to you in facts, and he talks to you in spirit. 
And uh, he wants you to understand that those spiritual lessons that he teaches you, those spiritual truths that he teaches you uh, are no different than the, just uh, the secular truths that he teaches you. It's the truth. And it's an important uh, concept that everybody needs to get into. Pastor Scott is here today. Steve's here. Billy's here. The Bible guys are here on the Dave Ellswick Show. If you have a question and you don't want to send it in as a as a uh, email, you can call 823-0965, and we'll let you jump on the line with these three guys, and and they will uh, they will talk to you. I've got the questions for you guys. Uh, how you doing today? Uh, Pastor Scott, how are you? I'm doing well, my friend. How about yourself? How's that foot? It's coming along. It's, it's doing well. I was telling, uh, the, the full disclosure, I was talking to the guys before we got started, and I, it will be one week tomorrow since the surgery. It's one week uh, tomorrow that they cut off all my toes on my right foot. And mm-hmm. I, still, yeah, I still feel my toes. Because wow. I've been I've been without my toes and I haven't seen my foot without my toes, I, so there's no, you know, I, if I can't see it, of course it's not true. Uh, right. So you know, I I I, I can't see uh, that I don't have any toes, and so it feels like I'm wiggling my toes right now in the cast <laughs> uh, that I'm wearing, and it's like I told Scott, hey, I had toes for 67 years. My, yeah. <laughs> my my mind hasn't figured out that it just doesn't have any toes yet, as far as yeah. uh, that's concerned. Steve, well, how playing, are you? We've been praying for you, man. I know, and I can feel it. How are you doing there, Steve? I'm doing very well. You know how I know you guys have been praying for me? I don't okay. have, I don't have. you know how uh, Pigpen used to walk around in Charlie Brown, and he had yeah. a cloud over his head all the time? Mm-hmm. Right. And he had, a, and he had uh, the, all the dirt around him? <laughs> Uh, I don't feel that way, man. I'm I'm full of the spirit and feeling great today. Hallelujah. I'm feeling I'm feeling good today. How are you doing, Billy? I bet you're doing good. You've been struggling with some health problems too. How are they going? Uh, it's a it's another day, and the Lord's still on the throne. So, <laughs> isn't it Amen. great that we can look at it that way, though? Amen. Amen. I mean, seriously, your best friend is the king of the universe. How cool is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's cool. And and I ha- I hate to break it, I break it down to your best friend as the king of the universe, but all in all, trying to make it as easy for a millennial to understand, that's what it is, to be honest. There's a lot, lot more to it than that, but uh, that's where we're at. Okay, well, let's get to the first question. Here we go. How did you guys learn all the stuff you talk about on the Dave Ellswick show? We're going to spend the rest of the show talking about it. I've looked at several seminaries, and I've not seen courses offered that would teach many of the things you guys talk about. Man, this is this is a whole show right here, but I'll let yeah, uh, we'll start with you, Scott. We'll let you talk about some of this. And and as you listen to the show, you're going to hear things you probably, if all you've ever done is go by the denomination that you ascribe to, you're going to hear things that you go, what? <laughs> yeah, what, one of uh, one of my uh, one of my instructors, he um, he actually has graduated from three uh, three different seminaries, and um, 
And when he would be teaching us, he would say, you know, none of this was taught in the seminaries that, that I uh, that I went to. So he, uh, uh, this this particular um, uh, professor, he just began to study um, Hebrew, and as he began to study Hebraically, it it completely began to to transform his understanding of uh, of Scripture, and so he began to look at things from a completely different uh, angle and began to teach it as it was taught in the beginning and the founding of our country and obviously prior to that back in, into the first century. So uh, it, it, how we learned it, it was it's a lot of years of, uh, of, of sitting under people who are a lot smarter than we are and understanding things from a, more of a Hebraic mindset and then plowing through it and studying ourselves. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's the long and short of it. Anything yeah. you want to anything you want to add to that, Steve? No, I mean that's really it. Is getting in that foundation of um, uh, people who have been studying from this perspective, and that's why we do what we do with the American Institute because you won't find this stuff at any regular seminary. You're going to find um, their denominational perspective. They don't take it. Um, for the most part, don't take it back to its cultural setting. It's an original setting, and, and you're looking at it through their lenses of all their particular denominational views. So it's um, when, once you get into this environment of studying from a Hebraic perspective, you're going to find out there is a lot more information out there than you realize, but your pastors and, and teachers usually don't head into it because it doesn't fit their denominational narrative. So there's a lot of well, information, a lot of books. It. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they they don't yeah. know it. That's what that's what caused our teacher to start the American Institute because he went to all these different seminaries and said, hey, "This stuff ain't out there. There's no school for me to go to learn this." So he started the school. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's kind of what Rumsfeld said when he was the uh, the head of the Department of Defense. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And you and don't he, know he, it he, because he, you've not been taught it. Right, and most most people have been t- what they've been taught. They believe to be to be true, obviously. But if you've only been taught things from a Greek perspective, that's what you believe is um, is correct. Um, but um, it really is a different story when you when you pull back and yep. you look at the thing from a biblical worldview uh, from the beginning to the end. All right, so I I did I don't want you to think I'm leaving you out, Billy. Uh, anything you want to add in on there? No, I I think that exactly covers it. It it, it stems it, it. I think for all three of us, it stems from a place where we looked around at some point and went, "Wait, this doesn't make sense in the context that we've been taught," and and then you begin trying to put scripture back into its pro- uh, proper context. And once you start down that path, uh, doors begin opening. Um, there's material out there. When you, when you start going, wait, this doesn't make sense in its context, and you start doing the research for it, um, you can find the information. Now, as Steve was alluding to with the school, um, a bunch of that work's already been done for you. There, there is a resource yeah. out there if you're if you're interested in that. But um, it, it takes an open heart. It takes a, a mind willing to to listen to the Lord, and um, it, it takes giving up on a bit of dogma because you have to be willing to go. Okay, maybe some of the things I've been taught are not exactly right, and I need to try to clarify and fix those things. Uh, at least that's that's where what it took for me to get to the position where I could start. Um, researching, and once I started researching, um, things began to fall into place. You know, when a train goes across the United States, it doesn't start off and stay on the exact same track that it starts on. they got to throw right. switches along the way 
to move that train towards its final destination. And if you've not learned uh, the truth, then you're never going to get to the right destination. Uh, literally, going uh, going to the to the school gives you the opportunity to study. You got to put the work in, folks. Uh, yeah. You got to pay the dues, and uh, they will throw switches so that you can see where we got off of the right track and got on to the wrong track, and they'll slowly move you back over so that you get on the right track again. Amen. How's that Amen. for an analogy? That's perfect, Dave. I do okay? You did perfect. You, know, you did perfect. I've, I've learned a few things doing this business. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, the second part of the question was, do you think this new peace deal with the Emirates is a good thing or not? I'd like to hear Dave's take on this peace deal as well. They're talking about the peace deal between Israel and the UAE. Here's my answer to this, and Steve will understand this being a for, being former military. Peace is always better than war. <laughs> yeah, amen. I'm, I'm going amen. to say it again. Peace is always better than war. Uh, does it keep us from ending up where we're going to end up at? I don't believe so. Uh, the God of the universe has seen how it, it's all going to end, uh, and we maybe we get a little of a, a little respite, but it was supposed to have a respite with this peace deal uh, coming to fruition. But peace is always better than war. I'd rather well, be at peace with a country than be at war with them. Right, and I think what they're what they're probably getting to without putting it in the question is, does this have anything to do with the peace agreement that everybody's been waiting on forever? Um, yeah, as no. far as end time stuff. Um, and there's there's a couple ways to to look at this um, agreement. Um, this one, prior to any other one, um, is a little bit more interesting, but not in the context of a, um, a Daniel Nine Accord, which is what people are waiting on. What makes this one interesting, though, is because they use the phrase Abraham Accord, and the, the a lot of people believe that what's written in Daniel 9 when it says that the – I'll go ahead and put their phraseology in there. They believe that the Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant with many. <clears throat> Whether or not that's talked is up for debate, but when it says confirm, that word does not mean confirm there. It means to make stronger, to strengthen, to prevail. And um, – but the covenant there is talking about the covenant. It's talking about there's only one covenant that's specifically mentioned with the phrase the, and it's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. So the fact that we now have people using that terminology um, in growing covenants is interesting as far as Bible prophecy goes. But this, is, I wouldn't expect anything from it because uh, I forget the Hebraic term for it, but the Arabs are commanded to lie to succeed. Uh -huh. And so them pretending to have peace with Israel could be nothing more than just pretending to have peace with Israel because we know one day all of the nations are going to come against them. So I wouldn't put any stock in and thinking that we're going to have peace in the Middle East. But Yeah, that's uh, what hey. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just go ahead and just uh, chime in. I think that um, I think that from a, a geopolitical um, perspective, I think, you know, what David's saying is, is right. All this, you want, you want peace rather than uh, war. Uh, from my from my perspective, I, I'm not in in favor of the exchange that takes place because, you know, in the in the details of this, there is parts of the West Bank that have to be 
ceded over to the Palestinians. And so in that respect, um, I'm not in favor of something that's going to be working against the, the promise that God gave, which was that all that land belonged to them. And, that, and I'll just let me be clear, just clear for everyone listening, that whenever the, whenever the media says West Bank, biblically speaking, that is Judea and Samaria. And so uh, there's a part of the plan that requires um, certain areas of this being left untouched by the Israelis. And that particular part I have um, great uh, objection to. But, you know, to get along with people, you know, obviously we have to strive to do that. Um, and, um, you know, is this a means to an end? I don't know. I just can't, I just can't support that particular part of it myself. Yeah, I mean, that part that you're talking about, Judea and Samaria, is in the Great Commission. Yeah, right. 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 I mean, let's remember, let's remember, remember that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's far, I guess my whole thing is neither here nor there. How's that? Is that that's the way my dad would have said it. Dad, what do you think about that? Man, it's neither here nor there. It's 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 a, it's a nothing burger. Yeah, right. it's, it's the pan it's a pan theology, right? Dave is kind of yeah. quiet here. Yeah, it all pan out. That's the way. It all pan out. All right. I, that's the way I look at it. Billy, anything you want to add to that? Well, uh, so I, I agree with what you said. Uh, peace is great. Uh, it, it will not last. But the the one thing I will always say is. This whole land for peace thing has been tried over and over and over and over, and it never, ever, ever works because you're not dealing with the people who want land. You're dealing with the people who want your extinction. So uh, they'll they'll take the land, uh, they'll stay quiet for a little bit, and then the peace will mean absolutely nothing to them. Uh, as Steve was saying, understand that this is a people who, from their holy book, say that they can lie to, to us to get whatever it is they need so that they can eventually destroy us. Uh, I know that sounds harsh, uh, and it's not the politically correct thing to say, but that is what true. the book that they consider holy says to them. So, All right. We'll take a break. We're at our first break here in the segment. 21 minutes after 7. We're already off and running grid material thus far. Uh, we're going to talk about a misunderstood scripture when we come back because – you think it says one thing when it really says something different if you look at it from a Hebraic side. This is where this Hebraic study stuff comes really in. has to do about turning the other cheek. We'll talk about it when we come back here on the, the Dave Ellswick Show. Now, I've talked about PI roofing for almost 20 years now. That's how long they've been advertising or nearly how long they've been advertising on the Dave Ellswick Show. They were one of my first advertisers here on this show. Uh, and they have been with me all the way. It's because I get them business, but the other reason is because they believe, like I do, in the vision of a more perfect union, that we're not perfect yet, but we're working towards being a more perfect union. And uh, they do that and, and support me by... Uh, you know, giving money to the station so that I can stay on the air, bottom line. But they do the job. Man, they are one of the best roofing company, if not the best roofing company, here in Arkansas. I've not used anybody else in the last uh, 18 years. In fact, uh, I used them just uh, four or five weeks ago. I, I had developed a leak around a, a satellite dish, and they came out, took the dish out, replaced the uh, the wood it had rotten there uh, there was a leak they fixed it 
took them all of about four hours. They got it all done. It's been uh, it's been fixed, and they did it the PI roofing way, which is the best way, the best shingles, the best felt, the best uh, the best wood that they can put on your uh, uh, your wood uh, on your on your roof. And they walked my roof. And looking at it, I can see that next year I'll have to put a new roof on my house. A lot of, a lot of little granular things all over the place that you see on your shingles. Well, they've come loose because we've had we've had hail over the last eight years, nine years, and uh, you know it needs to be repaired. So that'll be that's next year's thing. But when I gotta have it done, I'll call PI Roofing. They're the best. That's what I'm trying to tell you here. Seven zero seven thirty five fifty one. That's who you call. 707-3551, or go on their uh, Facebook uh, to piroofing.com. All right, guys, we're down to two minutes here on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show for this first uh, hour uh, uh, with you, uh, the, the hour we got with you guys. So let me ask this next question. I'm going to it. It's a question that has been asked before. In fact, in fact they said, could you repeat your answer about turning the other cheek. It is a very misunderstood piece of scripture, Scott. So uh, why don't you take the first, these two minutes, and then you can take more when we come back. Yeah, um, this particular verse of scripture has been used um, throughout the centuries to preach or teach pacifism or to believe that Jesus was a pacifist and some along those lines. But it just doesn't fit with the rest of the comments made by Jesus. And this is, this is a very common mistake made in most uh, Western evangelicalism. And I want to take one verse of Scripture and, and create an entirely uh, erroneous teaching from it. You have to take what someone says and then compare it to everything else they said about the same topic and then develop your type of interpretation from that. For example, when Jesus was going to go into Jericho, if you remember, he looked at his disciples and he asked a question. He said, how many swords do we have? And they, and they said two, and his response is, that's enough. Now, why would he want swords? Was they, were they going to go over there and slice bread? I mean, what was the point of having swords? They were going to protect themselves. Uh, Jesus did not have a problem with people protecting themselves. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul even said, you know, if you don't, if you don't take care of and provide for your own, especially those of your own household, then you're worse than an infidel and you've denied the faith. The idea of protecting your, your possessions, your people, your family is, is inherent within the Scripture. So when you come back to that verse, what it means is you have to go back to Hebraic mindset. When he talked about turning the All right. Seat, this is first. Okay. Hold, hold your thought. All right. Hebraic mindset. Here's Rush. All right. If you just joined us here on the Dave Ellswick Show, uh, we got the Bible guys on today. It's Tuesday. Uh, it's 735 right now, which means we're halfway through their hour that they do with me every week. And it's always Tuesday from 7 o'clock un- until 8 o'clock. Uh, pastor Scott uh, from over at Agape Church, he's the pastor there, uh, was answering a question. And the question is, could you repeat your answer about turning the other cheek? I asked this a few weeks ago, but I'm still having trouble understanding what the answer is. Okay, and then the the questioner, who's a woman, says, should we just turn the other cheek and let things just happen or what? It seems so clear from the verse that we should just ignore wrongs done to this. Now, I am going to make a statement right now that's going to get me in trouble. But I believe 
that probably 80% of Christendom has heard a sermon that has misapplied this this uh, scripture because they don't understand the scripture. Scott, back to you. All right. You have to whenever you're interpreting a verse of scripture, you have to take it in context with everything else said about the same the same uh, the same topic. I mentioned this in the, before before the break. Uh, Jesus was not a pacifist. He, he, uh, he they took swords with them in places that they that they went. He he did not live a life that would exemplify that. Now going back to the original intention here is whenever Jesus is making this statement, uh, the 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 understanding of the day was that. Uh, someone would become an enemy if they were a brother that was so offended with you that he hadn't spoken to you in three days or more. This is their idea. So that word enemy is talking about this. So when Jesus says, if someone strikes your teeth, turn the other, this is not some random guy driving up on a Harley Davidson with chains and leather on going to hurt you and your family. If that happens, your job is to protect your family. But what he's saying here is if a brother who is offended with you, strikes your cheek, your job is to say to your brother, listen, if striking my cheek is going to restore our relationship, here, go ahead and hit this other side too. This is, a, this, this, this is an internal family issue where brothers are trying to work out their relationship. And when you're dealing with the brother, you are meant to do what? Lay, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay his life down for his friends. This relationship where we're saying, you know what? You want me to go with you a mile? I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to go with you two miles. You want my cloak? I'm also going to give you my staff as well. So in other words, it's, 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 a, it's a restoring of relationship here. It's not how we are supposed to react towards people in the world. There's a distinction between the children of light and the children of darkness. And we have a completely different set of rules on how we treat each group. And you have to know how to apply them correctly. Yeah, and, and people misunderstand that. And then... You know, the, we get groups like the Quakers and others that use this yeah. piece of Scripture as you're, we're not supposed to go to war, that we're not supposed to fight for the for the very things that that we believe. And it's wrong. They're wrong. They're totally wrong. Yeah. Yeah. If you had a Hebraic mindset, uh, you, this would never be a problem. This would not be a, a, a doctrinal issue. You would not have had all these denominations break out that are pacifistic. It would have, we would have been able to hold continuity. Uh, you know, we've said this before, but there are, as of 2011, there were 41,000 Christian denominations in the world. And the only way you get to that ridiculous number is when people are not thinking the same thing, thinking in the same way, and applying the same standard to, uh, uh, to interpretation. I mean, think about this. The Jewish people have been around for, uh, you know, um, instead of 2,000 years like Christianity, more like 4,000 or 4,500, and there's basically six divisions within Judaism. So we have 41,000, they have six, and their basic six are not on massive issues of doctrine. They're basic on how to apply what they all believe, and there's different variations of that application. So there's a way that we – there's a, something we have lost that, that has assaulted our continuity, and it very much has to do with how we, how we approach uh, an ancient book, unfortunately using a Western mindset. Yeah, it's a misapplication of Scripture because yeah. if you yeah. take uh, – a pacifist view of this scripture, what you're saying then that God sinned every time that he told the, the people of Israel to go out and destroy their enemies. Right. Yeah. If God, you, you can't take, Jesus did not come to do, to do anything in opposition to his father. He was the, he was a physical manifestation of God in the flesh. And if he did if he is the same yesterday, today and forever, 
If the scripture tells us, I am the Lord, I change not, then if God uh, took active, uh, an active position in warfare in the past, he still does that today. Uh, you just have to, you have to think this thing through and not be so uh, knee-jerk on your interpretation. All right. Are you ready? Here's well, and another, he goes, he goes go so ahead, far Bill. as to say, he goes so far as to say, I have done nothing that I didn't see the Father in heaven do. That's so, right. uh, I mean, he himself says, hey, look, uh, I'm, I'm on the same page as the Father above. So, good point. Okay. Steve? I got nothing. You got nothing. All right. <laughs> well, then let's start. I'm going to start with Steve on this one. Uh, dear Bible guys, what should I do with someone in my life who seems always to be needy. I try to point them to the Lord, but it always seems to come back to me to rescue them or encourage them, etc. Is there something you could advi- uh, could advise me on dealing with this? All right. This is a common problem at times uh, within the church. So with that in mind, Steve, I'll, I'll start with you. Go. <laughs> See, I know um, because you're not you're the mo- you're the least empathetic uh, empathetic <laughs> of the three. Well, so go ahead. <laughs> there's a couple of different ways. <laughs> Despite um, um, some of the ways I come across, I am a very compassionate man. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> but then there comes a point in which um, you have to stop being compassionate and make people grow up. And if you don't um, counsel and lead someone to a place of standing upon their own, then they're never going to do it. Now, you know, as a pastor, you're going to want to counsel and try and tunnel through to find out why they always feel like they have to cling to somebody or they can't ever resolve an issue on their se- of their self. And the only way to get somebody to move into the position that they can do that is to force them to do that. And you, you, but again, you got to find out why they have such a clinginess nature to begin with. I had an example when we first started the Messianic congregation 10 years ago, 11 years ago, about two years into it, we had a person that was coming and they were regularly asking uh, for financial assistance. And then an opportunity came available that this person's trade was able to be used in a, in a church that we were working with, that we were renting at that time. Um, to help them with the remodeling. This person was licensed in this particular trade. And so Mm -hmm. I went to him and I said, hey, here's an opportunity for you to um, make some money. And uh, they just said, well, I don't feel like I could do that. That was the very last time we ever gave them a dime because they refused help and they refused to stand on their own. And so there's just got to come a point where you can try and help them, get them to a counselor, counsel them if you're uh, equipped in that area. But then there comes a point where you just got to cut the strings and force them to stand upon their own and watch right. God move on their behalf. Let's move over to Scott. Scott, this happened. This this is a dilemma for pastors almost uh, on a daily account unless they have someone that they've given the authority to to make these decisions. But for whatever reason, within the world, people think if you go to the church and you need you need twenty dollars, it's like uh, the church is supposed to give you twenty dollars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like Steve said, you know, the Bible says that we're, you know, this this again is applying to the family. Right. We're not talking about the world. This is applying to the family. And we are meant to bear one another's burdens. We are meant to, you know, to agree with those that grieve and so forth. And we do that. 
Uh, but it comes to a point where you have to understand, am I actually helping this person or am I enabling this person? Because you can enable a bad behavior by always um, being there. And like Steve said, there comes a point where once you've taught the person through what they need to be taught through to give them the equipment to trust the Lord and to stand uh, in faith with God, then you have to begin to, to wean yourself. Because what you don't want is you don't want to become God for that person. You don't want to become the Holy Ghost for that person. So once you start becoming an idol in this person's life, then you've gone way beyond the pale. And if they look to you more than they look to God, you are that idol, and you are now the hindrance for that person becoming dependent on God. And you have to remove yourself wow. from that person's life. I don't mean cut them out completely, but it, but when they come to you and say, have you prayed about this? Well, no, well, you need to go and do that. I'm not going to talk to you until you do that. Some pastors even do this. They will almost, in counseling appointments, they'll write a prescription for the, for the person. Okay, I want you to read these verses of Scripture every day. I want you to read this. I want you to pray this much and do this, this, and this. And the person comes back the following week, and they say, did you do everything on that list? And they say, no. And they'll say, then go out and make another appointment for next week. I'm not seeing you until you follow my instructions, because all you're going to do is spin your wheels. It might sound like tough love, but it helps the person to get dependent upon God and not dependent upon you, because you don't want to become an idol in a person's life. I couldn't. You know, that that's some of the best advice you've ever given on this show, Scott. Seriously. <laughs> well, okay. that, that was fantastic. Not saying that Very you good. haven't given good advice. I'm just saying that's tremendous advice. Billy, yeah. for you, anything you want to add to that? My, my uh, Scott stole it right there at the end. My answer was going to be tough love. Um, there, there comes a point where, and having dealt with significant quantities of, of um, drug addicts over the years, there comes a point where you just have to show tough love, um, and and it's it has to be done. And sometimes you have to let a brother hit rock bottom. Um, sometimes you can't. Sometimes what God needs is for us to get out of the way and let God do what God is doing in their lives. Um, and it's it, sometimes it's a matter of of cutting people off and and. Uh, allowing relationship to appear to suffer for a while so that God can deal with them so that he can restore them. All right, guys, go ahead, quickly. Just just really quick, there was a time when when Samuel was grieving for Saul because of Saul's great transgression. He was praying and grieving for him, and the Lord stepped in and told Samuel, stop it. Stop grieving, stop praying for Saul. End of story. Let's move on. There are times where where if you're listening to the Holy Ghost, God will say, that's it. Draw the line. No more grieving, no more weeping, no more praying for the situation. Now we move on. And that's speaking to the one who's living a godly life. Yeah, because God gave you the answer. Yeah, right. Yeah, I gave you the answer. We got. A, there's a joke about that, but I'm not going to tell it because it takes too much time, but it has to do with the flood. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> and uh, a question that's coming up is a good one uh, for us because it, it, it goes into the whole thing of – removing Hebrew thought from uh, the way we view the Bible. Stay tuned. It's going to get crazy here on the Bible, guys. Dude, uh, dudes, you need to look up uh, Deuteronomy 23.2. Deuteronomy 23.2. We're going to talk about it when we return right here with the Bible guys on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, we continue. Final segment of the Bible, guys, and this couldn't have come at a better time. I'm, I'm just going to say we're going to probably finish up 
the rest of the show with this last question. So if you send us questions I didn't answer, answer ask it, I'm going to ask it next week. Just stay there and know that. Here's a question. How are we to know which books or verses in the Old Testament are not relevant, believed, or followed compared to the others? I've been told that the New Testament overturns or reverses some Old Testament teachings, but obviously not all of them. For instance, example, the Ten Commandments. And then they throw in, what about Deuteronomy 23.2? Let's start here because this is the crux of, of why the church we see today doesn't look like the first century church. Yeah, we could do a show or two or a year uh, on this topic. <laughs> um, every single word uh, is relevant, and every Amen. book is relevant. And anybody who says that the new supersedes or replaces or does away with the old, I will quote what Paul says, I believe it's in Thessalonians, let the ignorant remain ignorant. You have to learn how to read the Bible, but you do have to learn how to read it in context. There are scriptures that don't necessarily apply that they were dealing with a specific topic, but you can apply a principle from it. What we tend to do is read everything, as we've said a thousand times on this show, from a specific Greek mindset, meaning every single letter and T and I is applicable instead of pulling back and learning the principle that was being portrayed in that verse. That's the most important thing is finding what it, who it was written to, when it was written to, what was the contextual setting, and did it specifically deal with something at that time? And the answer is always yes. Does it have an application that we can learn a principle from that we can apply to our lives today? And the answer is almost always yes. But we got to get away from this idea of reading something in that context and then just trying to transpose it into our day and read it just plainly and they go, oh, well, what does that mean to me today? N- no, you got to find the context first before you can see if you can learn the principle. Yeah. What did it mean then before That's you right. try to figure out what does it mean now? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, when you, when you just, just, just as a very simple explanation, you know, the, the, uh, the, the say, say the book of Timothy, for example, the book of Timothy was not written to you, Dave. The book of Timothy was written to a man named Timothy. And Paul was dealing with issues that Timothy was dealing with in the first century. But that book was written for Dave. It wasn't written to Dave. It was written to Timothy, but it was written for Dave's benefit by the Holy Ghost that Dave could go into the book of Timothy and pull out of the book of Timothy the things that Dave needed to apply to his his life. Uh, going, back to what, going back to what Steve said, you know, this whole idea that the New Testament reverses um, uh, the old, um, you know, you have to remember when Jesus, that, that's, a, that's a form of replacement theology, and we just don't buy into any of that. Um, and so you have, to, you have to see that the Bible is written as one whole thing. There, there's a, the, Hebrews, the Hebrews use a form of biblical interpretation. Today, we're taught mainly in our theological seminary something called systematic theology, uh, which tells us how we're supposed to uh, interpret the Bible. It deals a lot with the dispensationalism, how to divide the Bible into different dispensations, yada, yada, yada. But in the, in the time of Messiah and the time of his, of his disciples, 
uh, and even today, they use something in Hebrew called Peshat, and this is the way they interpret the Bible. And the P in, I'm sorry, it's called Pardis, and the P in Pardis stands for Peshat, and Peshat is, first one is the literal meaning. Literally, what are they talking about? And once you've got that literal meaning, then you can move on to the next one, which is, which is called Remez, which is basically, okay, so this is the literal meaning, but what are they hinting at? And then it keeps on going down and getting to, okay, now how can I pull out a spiritual meaning for this? And so there's a, a specific way that the ancients interpreted Scripture. And you can look in the Bible and see the, the ancients and the prophets doing this all the time. We don't see it because we've abandoned the Hebraic method of interpretation and adopted modern dispensationalism, modern systematic theology. And so we're using, it's like we're using a wrench to screw in a screw. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult because you have the wrong tool trying to be used to accomplish a task that you really need a different tool for. And so when you don't apply the right tool, you get the wrong uh, results. You, the, Old Te- the New Testament does not reverse anything. It, it reveals to us what the Old Testament was talking about. When Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, well, guess what? When he said that, there was no book of Ephesians. There was no book of Colossians. There was no book of of Romans. So when he said that, he's saying we're going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The only thing that existed was the Old Testament. That's and right. Paul even told, and Paul even told Timothy, he said, he said, all Scripture is good for edification, exhortation, reproof, doctrine, uh, and it gives all these lists of things that the Word of God is good for. But guess what? When Paul said that, there was no New Testament. Uh, all, all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't put together until 380. Uh, A.D. I mean, our country is only 244 years old, but the, the New Testament wasn't put together for 380 years after Jesus' uh, ascension. So, you know, this idea that the New Testament changes and puts away the old is just—it's—it's a—it's 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 a flawed—it's a flawed application. And of, I, uh, me, I'm going to go further than it's not flawed; it's a lie. Yeah, let me let me add something to what the, the example Scott was given. Um, this idea. Sixty of seconds. Okay, the, those four levels, the, the principle of those four levels is not one of those interpretations can ever supersede the Peshat. That's correct. And so if a pastor gives you something further and deeper, it cannot contradict the straight meaning of the Scripture. That's what we have to stick with. All right. Will you guys please keep this on the forefront? I want to talk about it more because there's more that needs to be talked about next week. Thanks to the Bible guys. Scott, of course, is a pastor at Agape Church. Quickly, when's the service Sunday? 9 o'clock and 1030. All right. So keep that in mind, Steve. Billy, have a good week. Guys, I'll talk to you next Tuesday here on the segment we call The Bible Guy. Uh, six o'clock hour, Dave Ellswick show. And uh, yesterday uh, at the governor's mansion, Dr. Burks was 
in uh, to answer questions uh, of the governor and uh, his task force. And then afterwards, she met with the press here locally and answered their questions. Uh, we have a copy of that from Channel 16. So what we're going to do is play it for you so you can hear all that Dr. Burke said. Now, Elizabeth is with me right now. Uh, we're going to hear this is cut up into two segments. We're going to play them for you. And then Elizabeth and I will will do the rest of the hour on, you know, the, the Democratic National Convention and things of that nature. But right now, here is her uh, presser that she had yesterday after she spoke with the governor and his staff uh, or the staff for uh, COVID-19. So let's listen in. Asking people to do is to really limit their social gatherings and social interactions with others, including their own family. If you have a vulnerable household member that has one of these comorbidities that we know is associated with a more serious outcome, please, if you have gone to a party or if you have forgotten to wear your mask and you were with others, when you go see your grandmother or that aunt, please wear a mask. Please protect them. We're finding that the majority of community spread right now is happening from parties, either indoors or outdoors, where people are either their family or friends and believe there's no one there because everybody looks good. Everyone believes that there's no one there that has COVID, and yet there is someone there who has the virus. And they don't know they have the virus because a significant number are asymptomatic. So this social distancing is not a word. It has to be translated into practice. And I just talked to the governor about what are his plans if cases go back up. And he has a whole series of mitigation efforts planned if the cases go back up. And what he's going to ask every Arkansas scholar to do right now to ensure that children can go back to school and people can go to college. And we really talked about if everyone through this first term did those things, made those personal sacrifices, we could move forward and still have cases come down. And I think it's great to hear about what the hospitals need, what you need for additional testing, to really hear about his testing surge plan. I have a very good plan for what to do if there's an outbreak in a school, very good plan about what to do if there's an outbreak in a university, and really how the federal government can be even more supportive of Arkansas and really understand what is needed. We have been privileged to drive around this country. I think we've put seven or 8,000 miles on the car in the last four to five weeks. And it's really started in Arizona all the way across the south into Florida, all the way up the east coast. And this trip was really about the middle of the country. Because whether you are in Oklahoma or Arkansas, Missouri or Kansas, Iowa or Nebraska, we're seeing cases. If you're in Oklahoma, 50% of the counties have more than 5% test positivity for COVID. In Arkansas, it's about 65%. So we are seeing the virus in these states. And so, and the state right above you and the states right below you. And so collectively, we have to do these things to stop the spread of the virus. And so it was a great dialogue. It's really important to listen. So this trip is about a listening and dialogue and really understanding and then taking the things that we see back to the White House so that they can be then provided to other states and governors that have maybe very similar situations and issues. So I'll stop there and see if there's questions. With school one week out today here in the state, what's your thoughts, what's your message to 
parents, teachers, students, and parents. Just remember, if there's an outbreak in the school, it's coming from the community. And the best thing we could do today for every single person in this state is to bring those case numbers down community by community. And that has to do with every one of us taking the social responsibility to bring those cases down. And that's the mass, the social distancing, avoiding crowds, not having parties in your home, not going to backyard parties, and really ensuring that we can get those cases down so that children don't go to school already infected because of what has happened in their community. I'll ask you this the way the, the teachers union here has asked this. On a scale of one to five with one not very concerned and five very concerned, where do you fall in terms of after hearing the governor's plan for people going back to the in class well? So across the United States, every place is different. Um, and every county and school district in Arkansas is different. And that's what's really vitally important. It is important that every one of you go on the Arkansas Public Health site and know what's happening in your county and in your school district. And there's a separate site for school districts in Arkansas that's been put up, and I found it on the Internet early this morning. And everyone should know what the caseload is in that county and school districts. If there's active circulation of high cases of new infections this week, you can assume there will be children who are infected that first day of school. And so this is what we have to stop right now. There are other counties that have very low viral spread. What we know happened across this next set of states right above the southern states is a lot of people went on vacation to the Panhandle, to Mobile, maybe even something far distant over to Myrtle Beach or over to Charleston. Those were sites that had high circulating virus. They brought the virus back with them. It's circulating in communities, and that's what we have to stop. So it really needs to be tailored to each and every community to really understand their cases and really understand what they need to do to stop the spread of this virus. Arkansas has said that every every school has to offer in-person instruction five days a week. Given the way you describe that, you talked about the decision being made at the community level. Should the state have such a statewide requirement? And the second question I want to ask you on masks. Um, you talked about the importance of masks. Why, if masks are so important, why not have a nationwide mask mandate? So we've been working with every governor, and if you watch across the South in the visits we have conducted, um, every one of those governors across the South, except for one state, has now a statewide mass mandate. And I think that is what we bring to the governors, is saying this is what we think is important to stop the spread. Um, the power for those kind of mandates and the enforcements of those mandates reside in the states. Also because we really need retail. I mean, obviously, if retailers are not demanding, it won't create the expectation that when we're in public, we have to have a mask on. And I guess what else I'm adding to that, if you're in private and you think you've been exposed or you think you've done something that may have created an exposure, like gone to a bar or been with 10 people, then I really want you to wear your mask indoors when you're with your grandmother or your grandfather or your aunt that may have cancer. I think it's really important that we do that to protect one another. And so each of these schools, and with the mandate here, we are seeing the cases coming down. So it does work. And on the five, five days a week enforcement instruction, is, is Arkansas in a position to require, to require that of each school given what we're seeing in some communities? You know, each governor has to make that decision. What I heard from the governor is safety plans. 
In other words, giving everybody the option to, to out-of-school learning. Um, at home learning and so a number of students and parents have selected that option and so that has decreased the number of students who will be in the classroom so we went through what that means for classroom size what that means for cohorting the students and then what they're going to do if they find a positive student and a positive staff and really how they're going to inform the families and we really talked about also sending information back to the parents of what they can do to stop the spread in their community because we can't put all of this onto the child. We also have to have the parents and the adults in the communities making good judgments of how they prevent community spread in their communities. Dr. Burks, you uh, mentioned the website uh, pertaining to school district level coronavirus data. Um, but as far as I know, in Arkansas, that just includes all the community cases within a school district. Would you be in favor of a more uh, granular approach that would maybe not say whether someone's a student or a teacher, but talk about specific school-related cases in the district? Well, you you know, you ask a person that spend their life working to get the most granular data possible, because I've always found the more granular the data, the more clearly you can make decisions down to the most local level and support those decisions. I think any level of transparency that can be brought to really assure parents that they will have the knowledge to protect their own children and what they need to do to protect the community. I think that's always very critical. So I would always want more granular data, but that's really a decision at the state level and the school district level. Would you also support having a separate, uh, maybe within the health department, a separate pool of contact tracers just focusing on the school district? Well, we talked about contact tracing, and obviously that has to be strengthened everywhere we work. Um, we've seen the number of contact tracers double and triple and actually increase by a log state by state. But we also need to make sure that tests are gotten back in a timely way so the contact tracers can utilize that information. And so that's what really I talked to the governor about. What are they going to do when they find a case? Do they have the capacity to surge in there and test students? And what they have right now with the public health group is the ability to do that with their public health lab support. So they have the ability to surge. That was very reassuring to me that, know, that to know the capacity exists here to respond and really get to the data that would answer your question. All right, that's the first uh, segment of Burks talking to the uh, the media. The second part's coming up, but we've got to get these in first here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, let's get back to uh, Dr. Burks and her presser yesterday. I want you to hear what she had to say here on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. The governor does talk, Dr. Burks, on kind of a daily basis here about how the Arkansas Public Health Lab is working 24-7 to turn around test results and that it's really the commercial laboratory testing. It's kind of holding the state back. Can the federal government do more to kind of loosen that burden on, on commercial labs to kind of turn around those So I think we did two things which I think were really important to support the commercial laboratories. We worked with the commercial laboratories to be able to do this pooling to be able to combine samples um, during that test. And that, you can see if you pull four into one, that shortens the turnaround times by, you know, 75%. So that's huge. Um, many of the commercial labs have moved to that. One commercial lab, or five of the six, has really been able to bring pooling up. 
and their turnaround times have dropped to 48 hours again. We do have one lab that we're working with, one commercial lab, very, very closely. It doesn't serve this area, it primarily serves the West Coast. But I think that's really a critical question. At the same time, we're trying to make antigen tests available to the states. That's a test that is rapid on site. Um, we are taking those tests right now, and I know every American would want us to do that. We're taking them off the production line and getting them to nursing homes so that nursing homes across the United States can rapidly test their residents and staff. Just because we know nursing home residents are the most vulnerable to this virus, at least historically. But we also know, I just want to be very clear, the majority of the hospitalizations and the fatalities now are coming from multi-generational households and party or family gatherings where there's someone there that's vulnerable who's getting the virus from their own family members. That's what we have to stop in addition to bring down fatalities. Is there a big difference between a Friday night football game with 5,000 people and a backyard party? There's a difference in that they can be in masks and they can be not right up against each other in the stadium. You know, you can mark seats. What happens in the backyard parties is people take off their masks. So yes, there's a vast difference. You've got to be in a mask when we're close to one another like you are now. I'm going to take this lovely uh, woman. So what do you think the federal government should be doing now to assist states? Where, where is it falling short? What, what, what does the federal government need to do to improve testing, to get people to be aware of the virus? Where do you think it's falling I think first and foremost, we've really focused on getting real-time data, real-time data analysis, and real-time recommendations to the state officials. Um, through these governor's report. And I think that over the last eight weeks has been critically important. We have followed that up with them sending me out. So I've been in 19 states because you have to listen. It can't just be a one-way way where I send out recommendations and policies and I don't hear back from the reality on the ground and what people are actually seeing. And so that dialogue and being out across America has been critical. I will tell you what I hear across states. Here across states that they still need support in testing and they need to do and they want to do more testing and you can understand why they feel that way and I understand why they feel that way when you're talking about an asymptomatic virus you have to use testing to find it and so I understand the need there and that's why we're working with manufacturers to double their lines that's why we're working with manufacturers to get these antigen tests out and we will continue to do that and I can tell you we're not going to stop until I feel like there's enough testing out there both for diagnosis and surveillance we've been working very closely to get this and I know you've heard about it the hospital data system to really, we have an interim system. It is solely an interim system to get daily reports from hospitals of new admissions. I think that has been critically important to support the states to get their hospital data, because that's how we then align the therapeutics that's so critical to hospitalization, like the rendesivir. And so that kind of database has been very important. And part of that new database is what the hospital and nursing home PPE supply is. And so we just now rearranged and put more PPE out into the, the delivery system to ensure that hospitals, particularly small hospitals, were having a shorter um, amount of PPE. So that kind of data, data is valuable if you act on it. 
and that new data has allowed us to really see what hospital, particularly some of the smaller community hospitals that aren't part of big chains, we could see who needed what, what did they needed, gloves, masks, gowns, and we were able to re rearrange and support that. That's what I'm hoping we can get to for testing, for PPE, for all of the therapeutics, and so that every American has what they need at the time that they need it, and we can see that and do it. And so we still have a ways to go to continue to improve on that system, but for the first time every day, I can see every new admission across the country, and that has been extraordinarily important. CDC is working with us right now to build a revolutionary new data system so it can be moved back to the CDC and they can have that regular accountability with hospitals relevant to treatment and PPE. Please time for one more question. Yes, the uh, federal government has had time, more than five months, it's had resources, it's spent trillions of dollars. So why isn't the United States leading the world when it comes to stopping the spread of COVID-19? I think there's probably three reasons for that. I think we've learned about the virus, but more importantly, we've learned what Americans were willing to do in combating the virus. Um, I'm asked this question all the time, and I wish that when we went into lockdown, we looked like Italy. But when Italy locked down, I mean, people weren't allowed out of their houses and they couldn't come out but once every two weeks to buy groceries for one hour and they had to have a certificate that said they were allowed. Americans don't react well to that kind of prohibition. And so what we've been trying to do and why I've gone out to really work directly with states, but also to work with our tribal nations to really understand what they need. What would their citizens do? What are they willing to do? Because if our public health message that we carry is not something people will hear and internalize, when you're asking people to change behavior, you have to meet them where they are. And so I've tried to really carry the message of, this is what we know works, and this is what we know will stop the cases of the virus. And we demonstrated that, I think, very clearly in Arizona. We went out there with a new concept, a new model of the critical elements to stop the spread of this virus. And what did it mean? Closing the gyms, closing the bars. I know everybody gets horrified when I say that. Closing the gyms, closing the bars, 100% mass mandate, social distancing, no gathering over 10. If you look at the curve in Phoenix, Arizona, which you count online, you can see the power of that. That is the power of behavioral change that each American can bring to their epidemic. Now we know that that combination works. The malls were open, indoor dining was open at a reduced 50%, outdoor dining was fully open. So people were interacting, people were out, but people by just not doing those careful things were able to drop the cases significantly, probably by more than 80%. And that's the power that we possess. And so that's the message I'm carrying around the country. It's no longer theoretic. It clearly is working in America with Americans. And I think that's what, that's the message that we're bringing state by state. Are we talking tens of thousands of lives that can be saved if people would just wear the masks? Tens of thousands of lives can be saved if we wear masks and we don't have parties in our backyards and taking those masks off. Somehow we always believe our family's safe and our friends are safe. You cannot tell who's infected with the virus. And so you need to keep your mask on.
Some interesting uh, stuff from Dr. Burks. She had some very interesting things to tell the media here uh, in Little Rock. That was from yesterday at the governor's mansion, playing it back courtesy of Channel 16. All right, time for me and Elizabeth to get ready to come back in the next half hour. But first, we got to get to the news, which is up next here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, let's uh, get it underway again here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We caught you up with a minute worth of news and, and got you some weather. So uh, let's continue now here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Elizabeth Sotolaro with me. Uh, hope you enjoyed that, that segment that we played with Dr. Burks and the information that came out of that. Uh, now let's talk about school. Uh, are they going back to school in the area that your children go to school in? I know... Uh, For instance, my grandkids are going to be back in school up in Cabot here very shortly. But in a story off of Channel 7's website today, the Little Rock Education Association uh, released a call to action regarding in-person classes. And here's what they said. The Little Rock Teachers Union is now calling for all Arkansas, all, not Little Rock, all, all Arkansas teachers to refuse to teach students in person. That letter was released by the president of the Little Rock Education Association. States the association members were only agreed to a return to in-person instruction after Pulaski County COVID-19 positivity rate is significantly reduced. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean zero? Does that mean 2%, 5%, 25%? What do you mean by that? They, they gave themselves a whole lot of wiggle room. But what I think is interesting yeah. there, Elizabeth, is they're not just speaking for themselves. They're trying to speak for all teachers in Arkansas. That's right. They gave themselves a lot of uh, wiggle room there. You know, they they themselves can decide when it's right to go back, when it's not right to go back. I saw a news article yesterday, cases among students are rising across the country since June. Well, so are cases with everybody around the country. They're just this week starting to level off a little bit. It's scare tactics. I was incensed over the weekend when the teachers were out protesting. It was not in Arkansas. Teachers up in the Northeast were out protesting because they did not want to go back to in-person teaching. And yet there they are in the streets, you know, shoulder to shoulder, no social distancing, no masks. And guess what? They had children with them in the protesting. So they're protesting in the streets with children at their sides about we can't go in the classrooms and teach because COVID. Yeah. Uh, The state of Arkansas Thursday released a guide to help students, parents and educators prepare for in-person classes to resume Uh, And from what I'm understanding, August 24th, for the most part, across the state, uh, the 20-page document includes a step-by-step guide on social distancing and other protective measures that should be taken throughout the day from the time students leave home to when they return. Uh, It says uh, that students should wear a mask uh, covering all day and carry an extra mask with them. Uh, a labeled pouch for school supplies that won't be shared with others, uh, hand sanitizer, and a water bottle filled at home. 
as the virus could spread at touch drinking fountains. We all know about drinking fountains and how often you you grab a drink when you're in school and things of of that nature. So they want you to be aware. So they want you to carry uh, your own, uh, you know, your own uh, water. The bottom line is you just don't share anything. You don't let anybody else touch yourself but you, correct? It sounds that way. I mean, again, it's just so awkward. I can't imagine trying to keep a bunch of kids from touching each other or touching their stuff i mean it's just it's just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me when we know from the science that children they may carry this virus they do not pass it as easily they do not get sick as easily most of these teachers are below what is it 50 50 years of age most teachers are below like 80 something percent of teachers they're not at risk nearly like everyone else. And I would just want to know how many of those teachers who are so against this are going to the grocery store and going wherever they're going, or are they totally staying home? Have they totally stayed home all summer? I mean, it's just, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to stop this virus. And it seems as though that's what they want to do until it totally stops and doesn't affect anybody. Then we're not going to do anything. And that's not going to happen. That's not reality. You can't be John Travolta and the boy in the bubble. All right. I mean, <laughs> they act like they'd like you to gotta be. That's be, what blows you got to be mind. a certain age to understand. That was a that was a movie John Travolta did back in the day about a kid that had terrible, terrible al- allergies to just about everything in the world, and he lived in a bubble. Literally, lived based in a bubble. Based on a true story. Based yeah. on a true story. And. Uh, by the end of the movie, you understand there's no living in a bubble. You can't. You can't do it. And you'll go nuts if you try doing it. So, uh, but if they're on the left, they've already passed the nutty fraction. So, you know. Think how much better served we would be if our teachers were teaching our children, you know, there's risk in the world. The world is not perfect. You don't always get everything you want. You can't always be perfect in everything you do. And guess what? Somebody wins and somebody loses. We don't all get a participation trophy. We don't all win. We can't always have it the way we want it. That doesn't happen. We need to understand how to work together. Imagine how different it would be. It also undermines what the teachers union has been telling everybody for years, and that is homeschooling doesn't work. Because what they're basically <laughs> saying was we need to do all this teaching, uh, you know, at home. Well, you well can't, and then you get in. You can't have it one way or the other. It's got to be yes or no. Uh, I'm going to have Lori Lee on. I'm hoping uh, tomorrow to talk about micro schooling. That's a brand new term that I hope everybody will understand a lot more about after tomorrow's show. I mean, there's there's a whole micro-schooling thing going on. Uh, Education as we know it because of COVID-19, I I think you would agree with me on this to an extent, uh, Elizabeth, and the left is going to have to agree with us to an extent because they're pushing it. Education as we know it is changing. Perhaps what we've been told that you got to go to this building uh, to, to, to learn, because this is what the teachers say, no, you don't. You can learn and not be at that building. 
I mean, I've been arguing all along because of uh, what we've got as far as technology goes that we shouldn't be spending millions of dollars on uh, school libraries. You don't need to buy all those books anymore. Well, I'm going to sound like one of our favorite, you know, what you call old school prophets. But, you know, the fact is all our money keeps going into public education and into these libraries only to have our teachers who are, what is it, 98 percent leftist? They're brainwashing our kids. That's what we're paying our tax money into these schools. That's what the schools are doing. I don't have children in school. I've made that clear many times to many people. My grandkids, of course, are in school, but their parents are in charge of that, not me. The point here is that people who are teaching their children at home, people who've had their children at home now for the first time since last spring, I'm hearing from them. And they're saying, look, I mean, this is a much better way to go. I've felt as an adult that every a young person that I've encountered that was, you know, pretty with it, pretty smart, knew how to navigate through the world, was, you know, had their feet on the ground, kind of had some things going on. Turns out every one of them has been homeschooled. They're not products of our public school uh, uh, system. Their parents have taught them about the real world and reality by teaching them at home. I think, you know, what is it, school choice, the money follows the, the student. I think that probably is going to be a really hot topic in the next year or two, and I think that the Republicans would be well served to use the momentum and get that kind of thing passed, where where parents can spend their money, their tax money, instead of on this brainwashing, on their own education the way they know their children need to be educated so they can be successful in the world. Now, again, let me remind you, this 20-page document from the state says that students should wear a mask covering all day, carry an extra mask with them, uh, a labeled pouch for school supplies that won't be shared with others. See, that goes against everything they've been doing thus far. Uh, They've been getting all those school supplies, and they're available to every student that's in the classroom, so they've been sharing them. Well, now the kids got to completely relearn this and be told that they they won't be able to share their supplies. And they're going to have hand sanitizer. All of them bring their little bottle of hand sanitizer and uh, a water bottle filled at home as the virus could spread at, quote, high-touch drinking fountains. So you've got the Little Rock school teachers saying that let's do it all at home. You've got the state saying we can do it uh, at the school. Uh, We all got to come into grips that, you know, you can't put everybody at no risk. All everything has a risk. There is a possibility your child could catch this virus. If you take all the precautions, they still could catch the virus. But that's the same. It could still happen. It still could happen if they stay home. That's right. You can't eliminate all the risk. That's right. What's the acceptable risk? I think everybody has got to to sit down and you better think that one really think it through uh you know what's the acceptable risk uh to your family and to uh your children so uh that's something that's going to have to be walked through over the next uh what is it uh today's the what day is today i don't even know what today is 
School uh-huh. starts. We're talking the 24th. That's next Monday. Next Monday. That's next Monday. On Monday. Okay. So uh, here we are on Tuesday. So you've you've got five days to basically figure it out. I'm just saying. You do. Well, or uh, maybe the teachers will figure it out for you because maybe they'll decide that they're not going to go to school next week. I kind of wonder what's going to happen well, next week. From what I've heard, for instance, again, it's up to they're doing this by school district uh, here in uh, here in Cabot. Uh, school's going to open. Uh, if you remember, I had uh, the superintendent and assistant superintendent That's from right. the Pulaski County School District on, and they were talking about like three days on at school and two days off. So you got that out there. You got all kinds of solutions here. You're going to have to know what the solution is in your school district. Like we've said, well, you know, we've said all along, you're going to have to make some choices and and take some positions in the current situations that we're living in. You're not going to be able to just sort of, you know, whistle while you walk by the graveyard and pretend like nothing's going on. You're going to have to decide what makes sense to you and your family. And I don't think it's appropriate to be allowed, you know, to, to let those choices be made by the government or by the school or anybody else. Every family needs to make those decisions for themselves and then carry their lives out in that way that, that follows their values and their choices. All right. We got one more segment we got to get to. Elizabeth Sotolaro is with me here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll come back, and Elizabeth and I will uh, have f- further discussions, not on school. We'll have another issue to take uh Uh, address here on the Dave Ellswick Show. 101.1 FM, The Answer.